Uh, first of all, thank everybody for uh, having me here today. I appreciate it. I think this is my second appearance before the Ribbon, so I've done some of my old material on you. I can't do the Bud Schuster stories anymore, but I will tell you this, that some days I feel I'm the most fortunate chairman to ever serve on the committee because I don't have just one chairman I can turn to and talk to. I've got three. But some days I'm the most unfortunate because all three have my cell phone and they feel no, they, they call me anytime they want and tell me what I've done wrong. So, uh, so it's, you know, it's, it's good and bad, but uh, it's, it's great to be the chairman. I, I appreciate uh, that my colleagues have entrusted me with that uh, in that position. Uh, and uh, as Joe mentioned, we're, we're working hard to try to move bills in a bipartisan basis. Um, and I'll, I'll say about the, the ranking member, we've got, we've got a good relationship, very good relationship. Um, and, uh, and, and quite frankly, Peter's probably the, the most knowledgeable member in Congress when it comes to transportation. Not only is he smart, but he's been around for a while, so he knows where the bodies are buried. Uh, so it's great to have someone that you can learn from, uh, listen to uh, you know, his position on different things. The other thing about Peter, though, is you know, he gives these passionate speeches on the House floor and in the committee. So a lot of the younger members, we went on the Codell to Panama, they were like, DeFazio's going with us? You know, DeFazio's, is he? I said, no, he's all right. <laughs> he's all right. And to that point, a couple of them, after the trips, they, they interacted with Peter on the trip, and they came back and said, yeah, DeFazio's really a pretty good guy. So, uh, so he's, he's got some new fans on, on our side of the aisle. Um, the, the committee uh, is, as I said, uh, we, have a, we have a lot of work to do, uh, a lot ahead of us. Um, I just want to, you know, from the outset, but you know, my feeling on transportation and infrastructure, it is a fe there's a federal role involved. It's from the beginning. I know Peter, you have your prop here? You can show your prop? Okay, I'll set up his prop for him to let him know I'm on the same. Well, there it is. Um, transportation from the very beginning has been a role of the federal government. Uh, and I've probably told you this, I'm sure people in this room have heard this before, but you know, the Articles of Confederation, they fail for a number of reasons. The breaking point was a transportation issue. Maryland and Virginia couldn't agree on a treaty to navigate the Potomac to get to western Pennsylvania to the Ohio Territory. So they it failed. They came back to the drawing board. Article 1, Section 8 talks about the three main responsibilities of the, of the federal government uh, are common defense, interstate commerce, and establishing post roads. So from the very beginning, uh, I also like to point out the first earmark uh, in the Congress was a, was a, uh, a lighthouse of, I think it was Maine, it was Massachusetts at the time. Um, so, so from the beginning, people understood, the Founding Fathers understood that if we wanted to be a prosperous nation, if we wanted to be a, become a nation and connect us, we had to have a transportation system. So you know, throughout history, I, I like to point out that the three significant uh, transportation projects in the United States, the Transcontinental Railroad, the Panama Canal, and the Interstate Highway System were all Republican presidents. Uh, that push those those uh, projects forward. So, uh, you know, I don't know why uh, we've given up that mantle as Republicans, but we should claim it back. And I hope the next presidential candidate from our side, you know, if he lays out five or she lays out five or six, you know, principles, I hope one of them is to rebuild uh, the transportation system in this country, along with the states and the partnership we've had for years with the states and the locals, uh, because I do believe that's a, a core function of government. Uh, just uh, briefly, just let you know uh, on the surface transportation bill. Uh, we're working very closely with Paul Ryan. Uh, we're running out of time, obviously, May 31st or 30th is 22nd, I guess, actually, because we leave town. Um, so we're probably going to have to do a short term, get us through the construction season. And so we're talking with leadership about that now. Uh, FAA reauthorization is due this year. Uh, I've said many, many times, I think we have an opportunity 
uh, to do something transformational. I, I, I don't want to speak for Peter, but I think we agree there's a problem over the FAA. How we come up with a solution, you know, we're, we're going, we're talking about that now, have been talking about that for the past 16 months. And I believe because everybody involved in it, from, from, the, from the folks, the, the air traffic controllers, uh, to the manufacturers, to the airlines, everybody wants to see something different over there, uh, see something that works. And so, so we're engaged with Peter and, and his staff and my staff talking about it, and we've been engaged with the stakeholders for the last, as I said, 16, 16 months. Uh, pipeline reauthorization bill we'll have to do this year, uh, and my intent is to do another water resources uh, bill uh, probably next year, but in this Congress, get back to regular orders, those bills are, are, are coming through every Congress, I think it's necessary. Uh, as well as we mentioned, the passed the FEMA reform bill. Uh, a passenger bill came through the House of over 300 votes, bipartisan vote. Um, so there's a lot on the agenda. Uh, we're going to be very, very busy. And uh, and again, I'm, I'm pleased to be here today with Peter and discuss whatever the issues are you want to discuss. With that, I yield to the, to the gentleman from Oregon, who, by the way, I found out also with Peter DeFazio, we've had these sort of mixers on the different subcommittees bringing the industry in. And I found out early on, you got to have good beer or Peter's not happy. <laughs> so we always make sure we have good beer for Peter. Life is too short uh, for bad beer. <laughs> so uh, now it's on. Uh, life is too short for bad beer. No, Bill, uh, Bill's learning. And uh, <laughs> he's, he's a wine guy. But I, in my real leadership position in Congress is I'm co-chair of that Housecraft Brewers Caucus. Uh, Greg Waldman and I founded it. Greg's moved on to other things, um, but uh, at that, and it's probably outside of transportation, which uh, Bill is helping restore the tradition. But uh, the uh, Craft Brew Caucus is and is the last truly bipartisan, uh, you know, endeavor in the House. Uh, it's almost evenly split, 143 members, R's and D's. And, uh, you know, it's a huge and growing industry. In my state, it's a $2.3 billion industry. And we drink a lot of craft beer. Uh, we have the highest per capita consumption of craft beer. <laughs> come visit, come drink the beer, visit the wineries. Um, America's falling apart, uh, and, uh, you know, we need to act. It's not just surface. Surface is in, is in deep trouble. Uh, 140,000 bridges on the uh, national highway system need repair or replacement. Uh, we have uh, about 40% of the pavement national highway system has failed to the point where it has to be totally rebuilt, not just resurfaced. And then we have uh, about a $70 billion backlog in transit uh, to bring our transit systems up to a state of good repair. That's not to build out new transit options to get people out of the their cars or give them options to get out of their cars. That's just to bring what exists up to a state of good repair. Uh, that's it, in fact, I mean, it's, you know, when I, when I give speeches around the country, I say, you know, it's at the point where, and this is very embarrassing, in the nation's capital, we're unnecessarily killing people uh, on the uh, metro system because of the bad state of repair. And, you know, we, we have to deal with these things. That's the bad news. Good news is we have the strongest Buy America requirements of any sector of the government, uh, much stronger than the Pentagon. So if we make these investments, we will put a lot of people back to work, not just in construction and engineering, uh, but in manufacturing, uh, small business. Uh, you know, it, it has a dramatic multiplier effect across the country when and if uh, we make these necessary investments. This is a, it's been a challenge uh, over the last, uh, you know, number of years of getting to the point of a really meaningful discussion of a true long-term surface transportation bill. Uh, 
And first we had to go through a discussion of this, uh, which is a devolution. Now that's uh, a picture from Life magazine circa 1956. And when I first saw it, I'm like, wow, what am I looking at there? It's a little weird. Uh, and that beautiful brand new ribbon of concrete is the Kansas Turnpike. And then this odd black area here where it ends rather abruptly. That's uh, Amos Schweitzer's farm field, and that happens to be the Oklahoma state line. And uh, Oklahoma said, if you build it, we'll build it. And Kansas built it, and Oklahoma said, oops, we've got some financial difficulties, we can't build it. So for a few years, uh, until the Eisenhower bill passed, and we had federal uh, cost sharing, this is what it looked like. They built a wooden barrier there. People kept crashing through it into Amos's field. He could have made a killing, so to speak, you know, towing people out. He was a very nice guy, towed them out for nothing. He didn't farm that part of the field for a few years because people just kept going into it. Um, and uh, ultimately, we had the Eisenhower bill, uh, and Oklahoma got a match, and they built their section. So there was, there was a little currency, it's finally dissipating, but uh, there were a number of members, uh, you know, got elected in 10, who, who thought this was a pretty nifty idea, Grover Norquist was pushing it, let's devolve this to the states. Um, and, um, you know, I said, what sense does that make? I mean, you know, first off, it didn't work in the 1950s. Uh, it's certainly not gonna work in the 21st century. Uh, we in a uh, competitive global uh, environment. And how are you going to coordinate uh, a national system uh, you know, if, you're, if you're not, uh, if the federal government uh, isn't engaged? And how would that work if, with all the goods, say, land in LA, so then California and the Port of Los Angeles are responsible for getting those goods to um, you know, the Arizona state line? Then what? Uh, you know, so, I mean, it, it really made no sense, but it, it enjoyed some currency. Uh, Bill has been um, educating members, and I, I don't think there's a lot of adherence to the devolution uh, philosophy anymore. And Senator Inhofe, uh, just this, uh, about a month ago, said, you know, Connie Mack and I kind of you know, really pushed this uh, about 15 years ago. He said it was, it was fun then, it's stupid now. <laughs> and uh, so I, I don't think that we have that hurdle anymore, but we do have the revenue hurdle. And uh, they're going to hold the first hearings in Ways and Means uh, in the near future. He already spoke to what uh, uh, Congressman Ryan has said. I mean, there's a growing recognition we have to make these investments. There are many, many uh, ideas out there uh, on how we can do that, and uh, you know, I, I think uh, we're going to we're going to act and act meaningfully and do a, a good long-term bill. You know, I, I was uh, a rare Democrat who voted against the so-called Recovery Act. And I urged then Chairman Oberstar to vote the whole committee uh, against the bill. And, uh, and I said, you know, Jim, if we kill this, we can bring back a bill that makes real investments in infrastructure and really puts people back to work. Uh, you know, most people, there's, again, that sort of drove this. People said, oh, you did that big investment in infrastructure. Because Obama kept going around leaning on shovels and saying, hey, look, we're doing all this work. 7% of the whole Recovery Act, under the most generous interpretation of infrastructure, was 7%, uh, and yet 42% was tax cuts that nobody knew they got, uh, which I call the Barista Full Employment Act, a brilliant idea of Larry Summers, uh, which is $12 a week reduction in their Social Security. Uh, you know, that didn't put anybody back to work, and my baristas is what I said, maybe a few baristas get jobs out of that, but uh, if we had done uh, the investments we needed, 
I, I think would be in a better place today, but it's not too late, uh, and we're going to do that. And as Bill said, we have a even bigger agenda uh, than probably any other committee meaningful agenda with FAA, Coast Guard, uh, rail safety, uh, etc. Et uh, so, and, and water resources. That's one that worked with started. You know, I said, gee, I got to look up the history here. It was actually his dad uh, who first had the idea in uh, the mid '90s that we do have a revenue source uh, for harbors, uh, and yet, you know, we our jetties and harbors uh, are uh, also in a state of disrepair or, or in need of dredging, and the money which is collected in this tax on imported goods is diverted by the Appropriations Committee up to more than half some years. So it doesn't get to doing harbor maintenance. And Bud had the idea back then, let's do a, uh, a trust fund. And actually, I started working with Bud in 96 on it. And then uh, Bill uh, delivered about 80% uh, of that dream in, in the last Congress with a very successful bipartisan Water Resources Development Act. Uh, we didn't quite uh, get to uh, totally uh, create a trust fund and, and put the appropriators or keep the appropriators' uh, fingers out of that. Uh, but it was a, f a fabulous step forward, uh, and uh, I think uh, when we uh, when we do the bill again next year, maybe we can even take it a little further and uh, get uh, more quickly and more definitively toward a trust funded approach. So, with that, uh, be happy to take. So now I got to tell a bud story. Oh, it's Peter brought him up. <laughs> and the water bills. We, we passed the water bill on the House floor, 417 to three, and I was happy about it. People were patting me on the back, but I walked off and I said to my staff find out the last time my father passed a word of bill, how many votes did he get? So they came back and they said 418. <laughs> but he had five people vote against him, so I took some measure of victory in the fact that I had three. Now remember, he had earmarks, which you didn't, so I mean, you, that was much, a much, I mean, easy to get those votes with earmarks. <laughs> Q&A, uh, Joe, you have the rare opportunity of either asking the first or the last question, especially since you did such a great job in the intro. Uh, I'll, I'll do the, the first question. So I know the committees are working uh, fast and furious on a highway bill. Do we think we'll see one this summer? Uh, uh, it all depends on funding, when the funding comes, because you know, the last MAP 21 was two years, and that's because we only had enough for two years. Uh, Paul is committed to finding for a longer term bill, a five or six year bill. Uh, the speaker uh, is committed to me, and every everybody reports in every meeting the speaker has. One of the things he says, we're going to do a long-term highway bill. Uh, so you know, the Senate wants to do it, the president wants to do it. Uh, so it's the funding, and uh, Paul's working on it. I don't think he's going to get the money here to us before May, uh, but we need to at least get through the construction season. We'll have to do something to deal with that. And, but I think this year we'll, we'll see we'll see a bill. I can't improve on that. Uh, although we might. I, I might want to go for a little bit more robust funding than Paul is going to be willing to provide. I'm doing the best I can, <laughs> pushing as far as I can to get as much as we can. And my solution is, I've said to everybody, I don't care where they get the money from, just so we get enough money to do a long-term bill. And you know, these governors around the states and the state DOTs, everybody we talk to, if you give them the option of more money in less time or about the same money in a longer bill, they want a long-term bill. That's great. The key with a long-term bill um, is that you get more, uh, I mean, you get bigger, longer-term projects, uh, which drives more economic benefit 
uh, for the society because then uh, contractors will go out and buy new equipment during the Recovery Act, which were all these shovel-ready, you know, just sort of that nobody bought new equipment. So you didn't get that multiplier effect. Uh, but, uh, you know, I've got a company in my district, uh, JCI uh, Johnson Rock Crushers, and um, I mean, they can chart it. I mean, when we get into uncertainty about federal funding, you know, it just, their demand drops off. When, they, when a long-term bill comes along, uh, up goes the demand, they get a chart, goes back 30 There's a lot of SUVs at that same time. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> I guess. Contractors have to get to the job. Yeah. <laughs> Good. So it has a great multiplier effect. Ralph Hillman. Oh, yeah. Uh, in 1982, Ronald Reagan was proud that he signed a five cent increase in the gas tax. He won 49 states just a couple years later. Bill Clinton did the same thing in 1993 and coasted to an easy victory in 1996. Can you talk a little about the gas tax and uh, the idea of Mr. Renacy? You can know it went off to a ways and means market, but you know, indexing the gas tax is one of the reasons the Aviation Trust Fund has been so good is because the fees are indexed for inflation. What do you think about indexing a gas tax uh, and how do you think that would fare in your caucus? Well, aviation essentially is done as a percentage. Most taxes are on a percentage basis and fee other than some of the flat fees. And so as prices go up, uh, as fuel prices go up, I mean, you know, you get a set amount, but as ticket prices go up, uh, you get a larger amount because it's a percentage basis. Uh, you know, we haven't raised it since 93. Uh, the estimates are it's worth about probably maybe 60% of what it was in 93 at, at uh, 18.4 cents because of construction cost inflation. I proposed a number of years ago double indexation, uh, and I've, I've got to talk uh, to the sponsors of, of that bill. Uh, if you go with uh, con construction cost inflation, it doesn't get you a lot. It's like it's 0.6 cents a gallon uh, for the next year is what they're estimating. And uh, I looked at double indexation because uh, we're losing ground not just because of the cost of construction, we're also losing ground because cars are going further uh, and trucks are going further, but they're doing they're more efficient. So you're getting more road miles and more wear and tear but actually less revenue. So you also need to index the fleet fuel economy. And if you did double indexation, uh, that would be about 1.7 cents a gallon a year. And I've raised this uh, to my colleagues who, seem, who are somewhat shy of the gas tax saying, do you really think you're going to lose your election uh, you know, if gas prices go up 1.7 cents next year? I said, you know, when I drove by the gas station on the way to work last week, the electronic sign went up a nickel. And you know, I don't see people out there with pitchforks. Uh, you know, so uh, I think that this is the time to do it. Uh, double indexation with bonding could get us a big bang in a six-year bill. Um, there's no will in our conference to do that. The president has said, I don't know, it was five, four, five years ago. Uh, so it's basically, it's not possible to do it. Um, you know, I think that the, anybody who was around in 1993 or even 1982 would say that they should have indexed it. That was the mistake they made and as Peter points out it doesn't doesn't solve the problem uh, so I'm for what's possible I know Paul says he's going to come up with the money so my commitment is we'll do a long-term bill figure out where the money comes from the day the president signs the bill the next day we're going to start talking about how do we fix the funding because it's going to get it's going to get worse I mean we're all going to be driving cars 50 miles a gallon electric cars that don't pay anything uh, so we've really got to start that and get, let's get a long-term bill 
and let's move on and then let's start talking about it so that five years or six years from the, from the bill we pass uh, expires, we'll have a, had a conversation in Pennsylvania. Um, it took them three years, and it was a it was a, a campaign, a grassroots level, plus a, an advertising campaign for three years till they finally were able to change the for, the funding formula. Uh, and what they did was lower the fee you pay at the pump. Uh, some Virginia, I think, eliminated it, and then they put a percentage on on a barrel, uh, which is going to get Pennsylvania over the next four or five years almost three billion dollars more. Uh, but it took three years to do. And when I first became chairman, I got all the groups in, I said, we've got to start talking about this now in, in, in one single voice. Because everybody's out there and they all want to do something, but we got to have one single voice. And it's hard to do what a state does. And many states have done this. They've gone to the, the people and explained it to them. And either the people have voted for it or legislators have uh, voted for it. Nobody in Pennsylvania lost who put up that vote uh, to, for the revenue for transportation. Uh, but it's, it's difficult to have 50 states for us to have one single voice to be able to tell the American people. The good news is there, there's every day I see a story about, uh, about transportation and the, the need for it. So, so people are coming around to it, but it's, uh, again, we're just, we're just not there yet. I reflect that, and, and, you know, earmarks are part of the problem. Um, you know, congressionally designated spending. So uh, having that, you know, you could say, well, yeah, you're right, I raised your gas tax 1.7 cents a gallon uh, with indexation, but here's the benefits, and by the way, here's some projects I'm going to be doing are going to get done because of designated uh, spending. Right now, I mean, what do we do? We raise the tax out of people, it goes to the federal government, we let the uh, Secretary of Transportation designate projects under Tiger Grants, and the rest of the money goes to the states where the state DOTs decide where to spend the money. Uh, you know, and having, uh, I reformed that process when I chaired the subcommittee. I said, anybody want, you know, we're going to, everybody has to have earmarks in by, you know, it was like March 1st. Uh, you have to show it's consistent with your state transportation plan. You have to show, uh, you have to have letters of support from affected uh, jurisdictions, local officials, uh, county officials. Uh, and I'm going to post them all on the internet. You have to sign affidavits, uh, you know, showing that you have no interest in this of any sort. Uh, and, you know, they were reformed. And I had, I mean, there was 10 times as many proposals as we were going to fund. It was a small percentage of the safety loop bill. I think it was 7% of the bill uh, went to designated uh, projects by members of Congress. Uh, but that helps. It really does help get people past that reluctance when they go home and actually point to something that is going to happen in their district, Democrat or Republican. So. Um, you know, that's part of it. I, I proposed also an index uh, barrel tax. Uh, barrel tax is really easy to collect. You just collect it as the oil flows into the refinery, uh, and you tax only the fraction that's going to go to surface transportation uses, and just collect it uh, right there. And the proposal I put in would eliminate the retail gas tax. I thought maybe that would get uh, some people, if they could go home and say, hey, I did away with the retail gas tax. Uh, and we're, doing the barrel tax here, and there's an interesting study from Rand that there's potential because of the way oil markets work, uh, speculators work uh, in the oil markets, et cetera, that the oil companies couldn't pass through 100% of the barrel tax, uh, that they would have to eat uh, some percentage of it. So we would actually start to get OPEC and the big oil companies have, helping to pay a little bit for our infrastructure, which would be a pretty good result. So uh, that would be a, an interesting way to go in the future. The other quick, uh, quickly would be vehicle miles traveled. Uh, Oregon, uh, you know, did a pioneered project which was very unrepresentative because it was Earl Blumenauer's district, and uh, 
that doesn't represent uh, my district. Uh, you know, if you're going to do vehicle miles traveled and you're going to do it in a fair way, you're going to have to do it real time because you shouldn't charge someone, uh, you know, the same amount of money uh, in Portland to get on 205 at rush hour as you charge a farmer in Burns to drive 20 miles of feed store per mile. So, but then when you start tracking people, then um, you know, there's a lot of concerns about privacy. So I, I hope we do some give authority to states to do pilot projects that are uh, on a large scale with vehicle miles traveled and allow them to keep the federal gas tax or something as an incentive to do that. Good question. Uh, you both mentioned the crew deficiency of vehicles, but on the horizon are, are automobiles or buses that would pilot themselves. What are the ramifications of that in constructing roads? And also, what are the ramifications, say, for mass transit if you could go from Washington to, say, New York and read a newspaper in your own car? Um, being in, I've been in the Google car and the Carnegie Mellon car, uh, it's been amazing technology, it's, it's coming. Um, and one of the things that I'm gonna propose is we put a title in the in the highway bill to start to think about how do you build a road for that guy. And I, I have no idea. So many, we need to study it and decide the different materials that need to be in the road so that the sensors pick up the, you know, I, don't, I don't know the answer to it. And in fact, uh, Pennsylvania, that's uh, contracted Carnegie Mellon to do just that over a three-year study. So the roads we build in the next five to ten years, those cars are going to be on it. They tell me probably five to seven years you'll start to, elements already show up in the fleet of this technology. They believe uh, probably seven years from now, I think they predicted, that you'll be able to go into a showroom and buy a car. It's going to be a high-end car. You'll pay 15000 more, but it'll be able to drive itself. And they believe within 20 years, 75% of the fleet will be, and that's where you really get when the cars start to talk. Uh, congestion will be uh, alleviated, safety will be dramatically improved. Um, uh, so again, we, we need to start to, to just think about that. Yeah, think about when you're sitting at a light and the clowns in front of you is on the cell phone or whatever, and the lights <laughs> change, and then, you know, am I going to blow the heart? But if you, if you watch I the... I bet you blow the horn. <laughs> I did grow up in Massachusetts. <laughs> Blowing the horn is the polite way of communicating. <laughs> So, uh, anyway, but if you notice that effect down the road, uh, with the Google car, it can, it uses LiDAR and it can see when the first car starts to move. So if you had a whole line of cars that were equipped with that technology, all the cars would start to move very smoothly all at the same time. And just think of how much congestion you could mitigate with that. That's just one small aspect of it. I mean, it's in incredibly... Uh, exciting uh, technology and uh, you know I, I think that uh, you know we will you know uh, see it in the not too distant future. I, I just the, the car that I saw that I rode in it was the Carnegie Mellon car it won the DARPA contest to have a, a autonomous vehicle be able to buy, drive itself and I went out and I saw the car that won it was a Chevy Blazer it had so much technology in it, you couldn't get a human being in the car. It had a bubble on top, it had antennas on all corners, it had sensors hanging off it. So seven years later, just seven years later, I go and see the car. It's a Cadillac, the small SUV, I don't know what that is, an SRV or something like that. And this is a, it looks like a regular car. There's no bubble on top, there's no antennas. And so I said, so, and there's no, the four people get in the car, the Secretary of Transportation said, we can get four sets of clubs in here too and go golfing. <laughs> so, but I said, okay, where's the brain? They open up where the spare tire would normally go, and I said, okay, that's a weakness of this car. It doesn't have a spare tire. And he said, well, it doesn't need it because it has run-flat tires. 
So the, the car is fu completely functioning, and it's, it's amazing technology. In seven years, it went from you couldn't get a human into it to we drove 35 miles on a highway. Uh, David Lapidus with American Apparel and Footwear Association. Uh, I'd like to bring the focus to ports for, for a minute. Uh, thank you so much for your work on untangling the West Coast ports crisis in recent months. Um, as you know, the West Coast dock workers and their management basically held American industry hostage for nearly a year. And for from around October to February, it was near gridlock conditions in the West Coast, West Coast ports because of their labor dispute. Um, you know, as, as you know, this is not yet over. They haven't yet ratified the contract. Um, they're expected to, but in a few short years, the West Coast Dock Workers contract is going to be up again in 2019, while the East Coast Dock Workers contract is up in 2018. And there's potential for those two negotiations to coincide. So we may be facing the same exact situation that we were just in, except on both coasts at the same time. Um, so I would, you know, urge your continued attention to that matter and also ask if, there, if there's plans for any oversight um, or reform of some kind so that we don't are facing the same situation again. Well, uh, you mentioned oversight. That doesn't fall on our committee. The labor laws fall under uh, education and workforce, uh, so we don't have that oversight. But, you know, it, it needs something that needs to be addressed. Uh, it's, uh, and then the market's going to address some of it. Those folks on the West Coast are going to, when the Panama Canal opens up, uh, they're, they're going to ship through and they're going to go to the Port of Houston or wherever the East Coast ports where they can get their cargo. Uh, so I, I think there's, there's workers that can figure out how to make sure that it, uh, they, they continue to operate. And, and we've already seen, and I believe Mexico is building a port, which is supposed to be a mega port, south of San Diego. Uh, it's going to be easier to go there. They already go to the port of Vancouver in Canada because they, they find that it's uh, much more efficient, uh, less costly to, to go to this port. So you know, it's something we need to pay close attention to because it's not right that we shut down the economy uh, of the United States. Yeah, I mean, I got uh, quite frustrated. I just, last weekend, I was home and I went in the, the local store and because I had to replace a screen, which the dog had run through on the, on the sliding <laughs> patio door, and uh, he gets very anxious when he wants to go outside. So, yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, the guy says, I don't have any screen. I said, we don't have any screen. He says, it's, he says it's in a container somewhere. It's, you know, I mean, I'm sure a lot of stuff that's uh, still hasn't, it's still backed up. I mean, I got to the point where we had an even bigger problem, which related to the Port of Portland, which compounded that West Coast problem. And I, I signed a letter with, uh, I think, at least Kurt Schrader, I can't remember what other members of the delegation, uh, suggesting the president look at invoking Taft-Artley. Uh, upset the longshoremen a bit, but I said, look, you know, I mean, there's a point of unreasonableness. And, you know, here and I mean the whole thing in LA came down to they really wanted to get rid of one guy who was uh, in a position to as an arbitrator and they really uh, were that was really that's drug it out for a long time and so I just said you know the president might have to come in and settle this so uh, there there that tool does exist for presidents willing to use it uh, but you know our you know our uh, bailiwick here is we've, we've got to deal with port infrastructure um, you know the uh, we've got jetties that are failing that, that uh, are critical we've got to do dredging for the post Panamax ships uh, you know we, so it all goes back to war to uh, harbor maintenance trust fund and uh, getting that critical work done one last question no, 
I, I had some hands up over here somewhere. Oh, oh, go nice. ahead. Go ahead, Al. Um, you haven't touched on drones, which is another very exciting technology, and some concern in the technology industry that the U.S. is perhaps maybe losing some ground to other countries that are making it easier to do experimental testing um, and could ultimately cede some ground to other countries in terms of our leadership in this technology. And if you could just talk a little bit about maybe oversight of the FAA and well, we've uh, held several hearings. I've talked personally with the administrator. Uh, you know, we have one early hurdle that we got passed about uh, the so-called Anti-Deficiency Act, and, and we don't want to know about it uh, with, the, with uh, his lawyers. Uh, but then we thought we gave pretty broad authority uh, to the administrator, but the uh, uh, opinion of his attorneys is that we didn't give him uh, the capability of doing categorical exemptions. Uh, so, uh, you know, they have, they have now gotten through individual exemptions and they're figuring a way to broaden them. So for instance, uh, it, you know, if they license uh, someone to do, uh, you know, use a drone for inspection of, of vineyards, then now they do think they'll be able to, anybody can just piggyback on that application, so they're not going to have to go through the whole individual application process. So there's been some improvement, but I think we're going to need to take further action. The key thing is, uh, you know, we've got to maintain the, the safety and integrity of the system, but but the, the incidents that have happened are all idiots uh, who are playing with toys that are too easily accessible. And with the problem is, uh, you know, you've got People who, you know, people used to build like little, I mean, when my brother built these things out of balsa wood and, you know, you put tissue paper on them and put a little engine on it and, you know, and started up very, they started very reluctantly. So people were very skilled in the model aircraft area until very recently and they have a strong, you know, uh, presence and lobby and they're responsible people. They know the rules, where they can fly, where they can't fly and, and that. But when, when, all these little toy drones for 1200 bucks, you can get a quadcopter that can go, you know, to uh, illegal uh, levels and it can, you know, perform and it can fly into the White House, uh, you know, as one did with a, a drunk, uh, whoever that guy was. So, um, you know, I think that uh, we're going to have to take some action and I think we can solve that pretty simply and just say any of these uh, things have to have built into their uh, software that it can't go above 400 feet and you geofence every restricted area in America and it's all programmed in and if you have one of those things that doesn't have that, we're going to find the heck out of you or uh, we're going to confiscate it. Uh, and then they can go play with their toys but only in places and that comply with the law and ways that comply with the law. Then you have to get to all of the commercial uses um, and I think that's much easier uh, and we could do much better for much, right now FAA is limiting the line of sight um, you know, we've got to get beyond that very quickly. I mean, we want to use them uh, in forestry, forest fires. We want to use, I mean, the, 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 we want pipeline safety, rail safety potential. I mean, the applications are just phenomenal, and uh, we've got to move more quickly. So I think Congress needs to uh, address these issues as, as part of the FAA reauthorization, get very explicit authority, and get a little bit into the weeds about dividing up the world into, you know, the toys. You know, model aircraft people, you know, the new uh, problems with toys, uh, and then over here into broadening uh, the authorities for uh, commercial uses. Um, you know, Peter is right about it. We're, way, we're moving too, far too slow. 
uh, we need to make sure safety is, is paramount uh, and we need to take a close look at it and again because he's demonstrated all the knowledge he has on all these different topics uh, um, uh, but it, Congress is looking at it very carefully and, and it, to a broader question you know not just drones but there are, are manufacturers in this country that one in particular makes a premier business jet it has a they told me they have a three-year head start on their foreign competitor and because the FAA can't get through the certification program fast enough, they're losing ground. Their competitor is catching them. And if we keep screwing around with the, the certification program, our, our American company is going to be right in, they're going to be neck and neck in this, in, with this, this, the other companies do business yet. So those are the kinds of problems when you talk about the FAA. It's, it's not just airlines, it's, it's manufacturers and people that make the equipment. They can't get it certified. When you go to rebuild a, a, an aircraft, they, I was at a, at a event in a round table with a bunch of folks that deal in the general aviation field. They're taking the planes, this gentleman has a business to rebuild these planes. They're taking it to Germany because the process to get it certified to rebuild it takes them two weeks. In the United States it could take them six months or longer. You know, if Germany is beating us, I mean, we're, we're in serious trouble if our, if our agency can't help, uh, our, our manufacturer can't help American industry to, to stay out ahead of the, uh, the pack when it comes to competition. So.